Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. Yep, so like tonight, uh, like Harris said, tonight we're talking about moral influence theory. And this is one of the big uh, atonement theories. There are seven main atonement theories that have been held up over Christian, the- uh, over Christian history. Um, there's many more out there. When I did my studies, I actually had to write my own atonement theory, which was really difficult because how do you outdo some of those big name theologians? But that was just Oren's take, but you're probably not going to see that anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe we'll start a movement here. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> um, okay, so just, just to start at the basics, so we're all on the same page. And atonement theory, kind of like what Caro was alluding to, is a theology around our understanding of the reasons behind the cross. And so atonement actually comes from the understanding at one And so it's all about how does the cross bring us one with God? How does it make us whole again? And there are three main questions uh, we, that atonement theories seek out to answer. And so the first one is, why did Christ die on the cross? Secondly, how does Christ dying reconcile sin? And thirdly, if God is omnipotent, why did he require that Christ dies on the cross for us? Couldn't he have forgiven us without that happening? But the important thing to consider with atonement theories is just that they are theories. Because God's ways are mysterious. We cannot know the workings of God's mind and the way he does things. Atonement theories are just our best guesses or the best guesses the church collectively have subscribed to. If ever we hold up one atonement theory saying, yes, this one is correct and all the others are wrong, or this one is whole and the others are flawed, that's when we start getting ourselves into trouble. And so we need to take these theories with a grain of salt, knowing that they aren't complete, they aren't whole, but they can at least perhaps point us in a right direction. And and, and so I guess the question then comes, why do we need atonement theories? If we can never really know the reasons behind God's thinking and decisions and choices, why do we even theorize about them at all? And there's quite a few reasons why we probably would. But for me, the biggest reason is the atonement theories we subscribe to very much reflect our understanding of God. And so if we subscribe to like what Carol was talking about, like penal substitution, an angry God, a wrathful God, one that needs to punish someone or something because he was so angry with sin, that leads us to believe in a very angry, judgmental, bloodthirsty God. If on the other hand, perhaps we believe in an atonement theory that puts Jesus on the cross as a martyr, just a victim to human um, crime and violence, then we might be looking at a God who seems weak, unable to control what's happening in the world, one that's impotent to, to stop his own son from dying. And so atonement theories point us in the direction of how we look at God. And so, like I said before, there's seven main atonement theories that the church has described to over the years. Here's the seven up here, moral influence theory, which I'll be talking about tonight. Uh, We have also um, got satisfaction theory, ransom theory, Christus Victor theory, penal substitution, the governmental theory, and scapegoat theory. And a lot of these theories are actually quite similar. They're just tweaked here and there slightly. Anyway, brief history lesson on moral influence theory for Caro. (laughs) Um, So it was developed in the 11th century by a guy named Peter Albard. And this guy, this guy, he's one of those overachievers. 
And, and when I was reading about him, I got a bit triggered because I'm Chinese and I've got a lot of overachieving cousins that make me feel bad. And this guy, so, so here's a list of some of his credentials. He was, he was a French scholastic philosopher. He was one of the leading logicians of his time. He was a theologian. He was a poet. He was a composer. He was a musician. And so he did all these things. And so he was an academic. And you can see the top quote there. He had a very scientific mind. But the second quote, you can also see he was a, love, he was a French lover. <laughs> he was a poet. He could woo the ladies as well. And so he was kind of like one of those jacks of all trades. That, and he probably had a little brother that hated him because he was living in his shadow the whole time. Anyway, that was Peter Albard, the, uh, the creator of moral influence theory. And he developed this theory as a response to mainly satisfaction theory or any of those atonement theories that say... God wanted Jesus to die to satisfy his own wrath. He, he didn't subscribe to that. He, he out flatly rejected that idea. And, and, and I would agree with him on that. I don't think God is out there just having to punish someone. If it's not us, it's Jesus instead. I think, think that's a problem. He also rejects the idea of things like ransom theory, which say that a ransom had to be paid to the devil to win humans back to God. Because that holds up the devil as like a rival god as well. And so there's issues there too. So instead, moral influence theory proposes the idea that Jesus came to the world to be an example to mankind. And so his death influences us on how we can truly love one another just like Christ did. And so this is a human-centered atonement theory meaning that it is about us. Jesus came for us, opposed to many of the other atonement theories which say Jesus came for God, to appease God, to satisfy God. And so this is a very man-centered atonement theory. And Jesus didn't come just to re repay evil with evil like the other atonement theories might say. Because to kill someone, to forgive someone else, that's repaying evil for evil. Rather, he gave his life unjustly for us, to be an example for us. And so it's not that we're then expected to be as good as Jesus and the, more, and the closer we are to Jesus, the closer we are to God. That kind of starts going down that line of works, which again is problematic. Rather, he proposes this paradox that Jesus is held up as the perfect example. This is how human life should be, knowing full well that every single one of us will inevitably fall short. We won't make it. But, uh, but what's that saying if we... If we shoot for the stars, we might land on the moon. It's that kind of thing. If we try to be like Christ as much as possible, we'll live a much more holistic and godly life than if we never aimed to be like Jesus in the first place. And so that, that's the idea behind moral influence theory. There's, a few, there's many verses that uh, Albard actually uses to support uh, his theory, and I've just got a few of them to share with you here. So in John 15:13, he says, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down his life, for one's friends. In Romans 5, 8, Paul says, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And 1 John 3, 16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And so all of these verses point to Christ's death as a lesson or an example that God gave to all mankind. And so if this is the reason why Christ came into the world, then, then let's just have a look at the influence that Christ was on mankind. And th th these are my own thoughts, these are my own writings 
on this when I look at the cross and, and see what example did Christ give us. And so for me, Christ was humble. He was not born into wealth or prestige other than being from the line of David. He had a great love for those around him and he was accepting for all, of all those that came to him, regardless of their culture, their gender, their age or their class. He ate with tax collectors and outsiders and those who were shunned by society and he didn't subscribe to the world's judgment. In fact, the only people he judged are those that use their power and privilege to judge other people. He was a hard worker and he did lead by example. He made time to spend with those he loved, his friends and his family. We see him attending weddings and celebrations and he often preached love and forgiveness and openness and inc inclusivity. He had a heart of gratitude and he was always giving thanks to God for all he had. He gave credit where credit was due, appreciating even the smallest gestures of hospitality and kindness from those who could afford it the least. He took time to know people, to see who they were, who they really were behind the outward persona or just what society deemed them to be. He was faithful, he was loyal to his father and allowed himself to be uh, led to the cross. He suffered willingly for the sake of others and even loved the very men who were executing him. This, this is the Christ we serve. And while we'll never achieve wholeness like Christ achieved wholeness, at least in this lifetime, by following his example, hopefully we will be heading in that right direction. And so this, this is moral influence theory, and there, there's many things I like about moral influence theory. Firstly, there, there is a beauty of this theory that encapsulates all of Christ's life. So many of the other atonement theories just focus solely on his death, Jesus on the cross. But moral influence theory looks at the whole life of Jesus, all 30 years of his life, saying this is all just as important as his death. We have to look at his whole life as an example, not just him dying on the cross. I like the idea of moral influence theory. It takes away the idea of the angry, punishing God, one that pits God the Father against God the Son. But it's, it's not a perfect um, atonement theory either. There's things I don't like about it. And so probably for me, the, the big thing I struggle with is it does seem to take away a lot of the power of the cross because we understand the cross was the end of sin. That was the, the climax of of Christ's mission, of human history, really, when we think about it. And yet it says it wasn't, it's not about taking away sin, it's just about giving us an example. There's something I feel like that's missing there. It doesn't quite encapsulate the, the significance of what Christ did on that cross. And it also creates a problem if we are to look at Christ's actual life as an influence, then what does that mean for all those that came before Christ? Because while there were prophecies and songs and things like that about the coming Messiah, you can't mirror a prophecy. <laughs> you can only hope, put your hope into it. And so those that came before Christ, it, it kind of doesn't make it relevant for them. And so, so there's some issues there as well. So again, it's not a perfect uh, atonement theory, but there are definitely some good ideas in it. But there is something actually I find really interesting about moral influence theory. And... And this is coming from back when I was doing my studies, there was a, a paper or a part of a book I had to read, and it just had some really interesting ideas about this whole thing and how it applies to us in this modern day and age. And this has been rattling around in my head for the last uh, few years, and I felt it actually fits quite well with um, this talk on moral influence theory. And so just to give some context, at the time um, when Peter Albard 
proposed this theory. For a time, it was held up as one of the prime atonement theories, and people subscribed to it. It had its time in the sun. However, it kind of fell by the wayside as other atonement theories, like penal substitution, were focused on by a church that had a higher or harder focus on things like total depravity and sin and the fall of man and things like that. However, in this day and age, 2023, we actually find a new significance, a new relevance to moral influence theory. And so just to clarify, or just to to give some context. Let, let's just, this is, it comes down to a talk about truth and our perception of truth. Because things have changed probably in the last decade or so about, uh, generally speaking, about mankind's idea of the truth, at least, at least in the West. And we live in an age where, out of all things, the truth is being held up into question, isn't it? It's like we all have our own personal truths. And this is different to, when I say personal truth, this is different to, you know, just, just my perspective. Because that, that's always been the case. And so, for example, let's say you and I were both going to a footy game. And I'm going for one team, you're going for the other. My team wins, your team loses. To me, my truth is, my perspective, that was an awesome game. It was exciting, it was satisfying. The ref made all the right calls. It was fantastic. But your truth is that was a horrible game. That was disappointing. The ref should be taken out <laughs> and lynched. Is that, is that what we were talking about last week? Lynched. Um, and so my truth is different to your truth. That's just personal truth. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about some hard scientific truths just being held into question. And we've heard over the last 10 years or so, you know, that, that term alternative facts being thrown around by the media. And, and can we really trust the facts? And where all this is coming from is that issue of trust. People no longer trust the experts today. And this is coming from all this information that we have coming to us. Back maybe a hundred or so years ago, or before there was the internet, we only got drip-fed little bits of information here and there, whatever the government will let us know, or the reports we'll get from the media, or via telegram, or newspaper, or something like that, and we'll hold that up. Yes, this is the truth. This is what we know. This is what we understand. But today, we have so much information coming to us, and we need to work out what is true and what is not true. And so when we hear facts from the experts, the scientists, the media, the government. It's all like, can we really believe this? What, what is the story behind the story? There is something else here. And a great example of this is you just look at what happened over COVID over the last few years. And we have the, the medical experts, the government, the media, all saying, you know, this is how we need to handle COVID or this is how dangerous it is. And I'm not, this, I'm not getting to the argument of vaccine or anti-vaccine or anything. I'm not even going to touch that. But let's just look at the response. There was a decent proportion of the population going, I don't believe what you're saying. I think this is rubbish. I'm going to do it my own way. And we can at least acknowledge that, yes, this has happened. And there is this pushback to what the experts are saying. Um, another example. This one's a little bit more out there, but still it's quite relevant as well. I think it paints a good picture of the, the lay of the land, so to speak. We've spoken about a lot of different perspectives here at Central Church before, but we've never spoken about flat earthers, have we? <laughs> it's going to get crazy. <laughs> so, flat earthers. If you haven't heard the flat earth theory, it's about people pushing back on the idea that the earth is a globe, but instead it's like a disc floating in space. And despite all the evidence, scientific evidence, expert evidence, saying otherwise that the Earth is a globe, the, uh, what, the photos, the satellite images, the, the airline routes, the, um, the, oh, the shadow of the moon, sorry, the shadow of the Earth, the Earth's shadow on the moon being a circle, not a disk, 
all that kind of stuff, it doesn't matter because to a hard, staunch, flat earther, they only can believe what they see. And so when they walk out to the beach and look at the horizon, can they see the curvature of the earth? No, it looks flat. And so their truth is what they see, despite what all the evidence says. This is the lay of the land as we find it today. And so we, we understand our truth is only what we see, only what we experience. And that might be different to what you see, what you experience. And again, all these messages that come to us, we, we have to work out what is true, what is lie. And so the media gives us stuff all the time. So say, eat this and you'll be thinner. Or buy this and you'll be happier. Or invest here and you'll be wealthier. And we get bombarded with all these messages. Even in the church, we get these messages as well. Pray this way and God will heal you more. Or sacrifice this and you will be blessed more. And so all this stuff, you know, it's been tested, but we've also find, found out that we've been lied to as well. And all of us have this mistrust, this feeling like we've been lied to, we've been told this works, but my experience says it doesn't. And so there's always some alternative agenda, they've been paid off, there's an invested interest, we're not getting the whole truth. There's that idea that we can't trust those in power anymore. And this is from me standing up here telling you all this, ironically. And so we can only trust ourselves, our own worldviews, our own personal truths. And it's not that we hate the truth. In fact, we love the truth. We want the truth just as much as before. But it's hidden. It's like that needle in a haystack. But the flip side is, if we find the truth, we are more likely to hold on to it, despite what all the evidence says, because it's become our truth. It's become one with us. It's become part of us as well. And so the truth has to be tested. And that's how we know it's true. If we hear something, it needs to be tested for us to know it's true and it's accepted. And so someone that comes up to us, starts peddling their truth, how do we know it's real? Just another sales pitch. The truth is authenticated like this. It's always authenticated through sacrifice. And that's, that's the key here. If a salesperson knows what they're peddling is a lie, is fake, then they're not going to sacrifice finances towards it, they're not going to sacrifice time, they're not going to sacrifice their reputation. You're not going to sacrifice something that you know is a lie. And so with this whole understanding of this is where we are at the moment, this is where we've come to in our modern times, let's now look at the gospel message and how does this fit together. So Christ also came into the world with a message. And the message was that the kingdom of God is here and now. And God loves us and wants us to come back to him. That was the message of Christ. And most of us have had in this room, have probably had an encounter with Christ. We've had some encounter. He's spoken to our hearts. And it feels amazing. And it feels life-giving. But I'm sure we've also had those thoughts go through our head. Is this real? Is this something we can hold on to? Or am I just telling myself this is real just so I feel better about myself and about this world that I live in as well. And that's where the power of the cross comes into it. Because Christ sacrificed everything to show us that his truth was real. He gave his life. And we think about all the salesmen that are out there. We think of like Elon Musk and all those guys. How many of them would die for their vision to say that, that it's true? Christ paid that ultimate price to show us that it is real. And this holds a tremendous weight in the modern mindset in today's age. 
And so we ask ourselves, then how do we know Jesus loves us? Okay, yes, he died, but how does Jesus love us? Well, we look at the gospel story. And what did Jesus say to those men nailing him to the cross? At the very moment, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And if Christ can love them as they're executing him right there and then, we think, to, we think about our own lives. What have you done that's worse than that? Have you ever done anything worse than kill God? Probably not. And so God, Christ can love them. If God can love them, God can love us as well. There, there is a certainty we can find in that. And so Jesus' life provides us a beautiful example and his death affirms that truth. And every time we look to live like Jesus is asking us to live by, the, by his influence, by his example, through moral influence theory, then we can be assured that we are doing the right thing because Christ gave his life for it. And so is it right to break bread with the outcasts of society? Yes, because Jesus gave his life to affirm it. Is it right to have faith in God and can we trust that God is there with us? Yes, because Jesus' death affirms it. And is it right for us to love our enemies? Then yes, because Jesus' death affirms it. All of this is part of the example that Jesus came into the world to give us. So moral influence theory, it's in this modern day and age, it is an example, yes, but it's so much more than that as well. It is also proof it is also authentic authentication, and it's also permission for us to have faith in God, to live as Jesus lived, and do that with confidence. And so for us, what does this mean? It means that our faith is not a relic of some pre-secular society, because sometimes it feels like that. Sometimes it feels like Christendom had its time, but majority of people in our workplace, our family, our friends, don't believe in Christ. They don't understand or have that love, that relationship with God. But it shows that it's still relevant and the cross symbolizes that authenticity for God's love for us. It is a truth and the authentication of that truth. And that in itself, in any context, is like the holy grail of what people are looking for. They want to know the truth. We want to know what is true and opposed to what is lies and what's just the sales pitch. And so we have, can be confident we have something that is truth, that is life, that is tangible, that is there. And so when we talk to our friends and family and, and colleagues, there is a confidence, there's a sturdiness that we can find. In, in my own line of work, I work in a couple of schools as a chaplain, and in, I have a lot of conversations uh, with the kids at these schools, and we're told as chaplains we're not, go, we're not allowed to go in and just preach at the schools, and that's good because I don't want to do that. The, the way I connect with kids is through relationship and through building that rapport it opens up windows and opportunities to share about, you know, this, this is what helps me, this, this is what I believe. And the best conversations I have are with, the kid, are with the messiest kids, are with the kids that are, you know, some of these kids have, have criminal records. Some of these kids, you know, have, uh, are in, in foster homes. Uh, some of these kids, you know, are, are doing drugs, they're, they're dabbling in, in witchcraft, they're joining gangs. But these are the kids that are searching. These are the kids that know they don't have it together, that are looking for something tangible and real to hold on to. And so when we sit down, they tell me about whatever 
horrible things going on in their life and they ask me, you know, so how do I keep together? How do I stop myself from crying myself to sleep every night? And, and, and that's an opportunity for me to share about my, my faith and, and my beliefs. And, and I tell them that I'm a Christian. I believe that God loves us. And that is initially met with a bit of an eye roll, a bit of a scoff, a bit of a yeah, right? But then if I have an opportunity to talk about, and this is real because Christ, Jesus, gave his very life for this truth, then that's where I've actually seen several times little, little triggers in, in their mind, like a little, huh, that's interesting. It's almost like, okay, so if I'm worth dying for, maybe I have something worth living for as well. Because the idea that someone could love them that much is such a foreign concept for a lot of these kids. It's like, if my own parents don't love me, if I don't even love me that much, how could God possibly love me? And so this, to me, is moral influence theory in practice. It's an example. It's authentication. It's proof. It's permission. And that comes together into something that's really strong, holds weight, and is relevant in today's day and age. And so, just to finish, it's the power of the cross that we observe in our faith, and especially in this time of Easter. And while moral influence theory isn't holistic, and no atonement theories are, the good news is that we're not saved through theories, but we're saved through Christ. And we can hold our confidence in him, not just in the theories of men. And so may you demonstrate the love of Jesus around you today with the confidence to know that Christ's life and death proves his love for us. It authenticates it, it backs it up, it supports it. And the love of God is real, it's alive, and it's also relevant today. And so may you show the example of Jesus Christ in your life. And may his example spur you on to goodness and wholeness as well. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. <laughs>